Welcome to Manifestable. And right now we are in front of a live studio audience in LA. And I have Dr. Deepika Chopra with me. This was such an incredible episode because I got to ask her questions. And it's sometimes I let the audience also ask questions. You're going to love this episode. Let's dive right in. A life that is full of abundance and manifestation and optimism and happiness and joy, in my mind, is not a life that is devoid of stress or worry or sadness or anger. We are humans and we experience the full range of human emotion. And we have to accept that. We have to validate it. We have to normalize it. We have to make that okay because otherwise we sit in fear and shame. And that is not a place to create anything from. Welcome to Manifestable, where you'll receive profound breakthroughs, courage to break old patterns, and live into your soul's purpose. Each week, I will bring you epic guests, live coaching, and manifestation tools to remind you of your power. You have the ability to achieve extraordinary things, and the time to start is now. Our guest today is the incredible Dr. Topeka Chopra, also known as the Optimism Doctor. Dr. Topeka is the author and founder of Things Are Looking Up and specializes in what she has coined evidence-based manifestation. She specializes in bridging together holistic practices and scientific evidence to cultivate self-mastery tools to help her clients create their own sense of lasting happiness, resiliency, optimism, and success. Today, we are going to talk about toxic positivity. This is all the rage. It is a trend right now, and she's going to talk us through why this is actually not helping you on your journey. We are also going to talk about what does it mean to be able to have evidence-based manifestation? How do you actually manifest, and what is she doing to create powerful realistic goals in her life. I can't wait to dive into this episode. You can find more about Dr. Topeka on Instagram at Dr. Topeka, and I'm going to spell it out for you. Dr. D-R-D-E-E-P-I-K-A-C-H-O-P-R-A. And you can go on her website at allthingsarelookingup.com and find her on Instagram and Facebook. I can't wait to dive into this episode. Let's get started. Oh, you guys, how fun. Hi. <laughs> Gotta be honest, I didn't even know this was a live audience. You did very exciting. You didn't read the email. No, I didn't. <laughs> so I kind of got on the way here. It's, I was like going through and it said, and come 15 minutes early because there's a live audience. I was like, a live audience, but I love a live audience. So. <laughs> Hi, guys. Sorry. I, uh, well, you, you know. look amazing. <laughs> you look amazing. Gotta this be is comfy. A, this is a podcaster. <laughs> nice on top, a little bit less on <laughs> As they know. But I really wanted to play around with the live audience. So yeah. I made sure it was a small, loving, amazing audience. These are amazing women. So that we, because I think it changes the conversation, doesn't it? Absolutely. There's nothing like that interaction and an intimate group and really feeding off of each other's energy. 
Yeah, totally. So that's what the goal is, is that we're all just here together and really diving into because I want to understand you're about evidence-based manifestation. When did this come to you? When did you start living into this practice? You know, it's hard to say. I think that I was raised by two optimists. And I say that and I stop with that because I'm known as the optimism doctor, but I have to say off the bat, I am not the most optimistic person. I am not anyone's guru. I'm not the person of optimism. I'm just working on it just like everybody else. I just know the science behind it. And I feel like my strength is really helping people understand what optimism is and how to get more of it in your life because it's a very important thing for you physically and emotionally. Evidence-based manifestation, so interesting. I think it was kind of a product of when I was a little girl, I had a best friend whose mom very early on started talking to me about the law of attraction. Like very early, I had like the tapes of like Esther and Jerry Hicks and Abraham Hicks and they were on cassettes. And I was super little. I liked the idea of it and I remember being mesmerized by it, but I am a question asker. And I think that's probably why I'm a behavioral scientist. I was always, I was that annoying kid that was like, but why? But why? I needed all the answers. And so the way in which that was explained to me, I didn't quite get on the bandwagon with. Like just the spiritual side of it was a little bit tough for me, even though I was raised spiritually. I wanted to know the science behind it and I wanted to know why. And so when I ended up going into my graduate career and I have a doctorate in clinical health psychology, I think it was kind of a natural and organic no-brainer, no pun intended, for me to seek sort of like the answers to the questions that I personally had. And so I used that opportunity to sort of dig deep. And I started learning a lot about the brain. And I was uncovering these things in my research that was mind-blowing to me and sort of answered a lot of my own questions. Wow, that's really cool. That's awesome. And you have this theory around there's this kind of toxic positivity. And I, I think that's kind of interesting because, you know, in this world of talking about manifesting and be in love, be in positive by, you know, we're going to hear this a lot, right? And you have been hearing this. Can you explain why you think there could be a toxic positivity movement happening? Yeah, and I actually think there is one. It already is. It's already here. And it's already (laughs) been in motion, I'd say, for more than a decade now. But something really struck me. So I was a psycho-oncologist at UCLA for quite a few years, which means I worked with oncology patients and their families. And something that was mind-blowing to me when I'd sit across from someone, and it really struck me because, you know, and I think it, it... was me coming off of a lot of this law of attraction. I think I wasn't fully understanding it. And I'd sit across from someone and, you know, these are people that in LA, I was at UCLA, have gone everywhere. They have tried everything. They have seen every healer, every person. And they're also seeking treatment, evidence-based treatment at UCLA. And I remember sitting across from a couple of patients really early on to this. And they were just like, I was told that I created this. You know, I was anxious. I was worrying. I had those thoughts. And now I've created cancer in my body. And... I know this is going to be a little controversial maybe with this space, but that really broke my heart. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and you did not create it. And I think that was something that 
you know, it's easy for us to be on that sort of moving car and thinking that our thoughts create our reality, which they do a lot of times when things are going well. But it's a whole different scenario when you're sitting in the adversity of trauma, of chronic illness, facing death, any of these things. And so I think it's important to realize that, yes, your thoughts do create reality, but it's not just your thoughts. There's a whole lot in between there that I think a lot of us sort of just skip over. And I think that I'm a big fan of manifestation, but I had to really learn how to use it correctly. And I had to learn that there was a huge part in between like thinking about what I wanted and then what was actually happening that was missing. And that I think a lot of people don't talk about. And so for me, that was an eye-opener. And it really grounded me and brought me more into the idea of tools. I am obsessed with helping people come up with their own toolboxes. And I think that what a lot of people miss when they think about the idea of manifestation is they miss the idea of action. And they miss the idea of expectation. And so, again, maybe kind of controversial, but I don't anymore believe that you just simply want for something and then expect the universe to drop it into your lap a I'm second later. I'm with her on that one, by the way. So sorry to, <laughs> I might be in the wrong, I don't know, but <laughs> I don't believe in that anymore. I think there's a lot in between that. And I also think that just because something really crappy has happened in your life, it doesn't mean that you are solely responsible for that thing to happen, but it does mean that you are responsible for how you're going to act next and how you want to act next. And oftentimes we defining optimism, you know, even that in itself and how it's related to toxic positivity and how I think optimism is completely opposite than toxic positivity is because I think we also misunderstand the definition of optimism. You know, if I usually am sitting in front of a large audience, I'll ask people to like shout out, you know, the first word they think of when they think of optimism. And, you know, more often than not, it's positivity. It's glass half full. It's rose-colored glasses. And I love to uncover for people, like, that's actually not how we define optimism. And the first two words that come to my mind as someone that researches it and has spent over a decade just solely interested in the science behind optimism, the two words that come to my mind when I think of optimism, actually, positivity is not one of them. It is in the top five, but I wouldn't say it's the top two. It's resiliency and curiosity. And so I think a lot of people, you know, assume that being optimistic means you have to have magical thinking. And by the way, I love magical thinking, but you have to have magical thinking solely and there's no room for any form of any feeling that doesn't feel good. And, you know, you have to be devoid of reality. I don't know if you guys have heard that, but, you know, people always say, I'm not an optimist, I'm realistic. Well, there is a lot of realism in in true optimism. A true optimist is someone that is very aware, keenly and mindfully aware of the setbacks, the roadblocks, the less than ideal situations that happen in all of our lives, not just in our lives, but every day a setback happens. But the caveat is they see those setbacks as something that's temporary and something that they have the ability and power to overcome even if they don't know how or when, but they know that they can. And that is based on personal resiliency. And in order to have resiliency, what do we need? We need struggle. 
We have to persevere through it. So a life that is full of abundance and manifestation and optimism and happiness and joy, in my mind, is not a life that is devoid of stress or worry or sadness or anger. We are humans and we experience the full range of human emotion. And we have to accept that. We have to validate it. We have to normalize it. We have to make that okay because otherwise we sit in fear and shame. And that is not a place to create anything from. Wow. That was so good. I loved your way of looking at optimism. Like that was powerful for me. You guys, this, when I interview people, I do not want to impose any of my opinions. I want to ask them really in-depth questions. So I want to ask you about people who are dealing with terminal illness or like you said, autoimmune disease, chronic disease. Maybe they've even loved someone who's passed away. What's your theory on, do you feel people can cure themselves from these things that are called terminal through manifesting energy or their mind? So that kind of goes a little bit outside my realm of expertise and sort of falls a little more on, I guess, There's personal beliefs I might have, and then there's things that I have seen and there's evidence for, and I'm very rooted in evidence-based science, so. um, (laughs) Very safe. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think it's, there's a personal piece of that. And I also think it leads back to some of the work I was doing before. And I used to think one way and be really strong about it until I saw what I saw. And not everybody gets to live. And even if they really want to, and even if they've tried everything under the sun, and I just think it creates this really messed up form of pressure that makes every day that goes by less enjoyable than it could be, even when you're faced with something really awful. And so I've kind of let the idea of hard outcomes go. And that's something that has helped me in my own personal life, also dealing with an autoimmune disease, but having to do the work that I do and did sitting across from people that are possibly dying or sitting across from someone's mom or sister of someone that is passing away or has passed away. And it's an awful thing to think if they just didn't, if they just thought a little bit harder or, you know, meditated a little bit longer or, you know, held that visualization, you know, a little bit more they could have lived. I just think that's kind of unfair. Yeah. So that will be my second question to you. You know, you already referred to this polarity that to have optimism, you have to have challenge. Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to build that resiliency. You know, in this kind of human realm, stereotypically, we look at death as bad and living as great. Right. Or healthy body, good maybe some difficulties within body, bad. Do you agree with that? Not really. Yeah. Again, I think personal. I think that one of the biggest tools of optimism and life is really the idea of perception. And we as humans, for the most part, all have that in our toolbox. We just kind of don't learn these things at a young age. We learn other things at a young age, but I don't know why we don't have classes on like, here are your skills that come with your brain and here's how to sharpen them. One of them is perception. Imagine being able to teach a child the skill and art of perception. I mean, that's life-changing. 
that's what I'm really passionate about as what I study. And I'm a mom of, of two young boys. And this whole sort of last six months and then the next year, calendar year forward, for me is all about inspiring the youth. And I'm starting a lot younger than I usually do. But I think that, you know, perception is key here. And I also think it's really important to meet someone where they're at. What are their beliefs? Culture comes into play a lot with this. Religion comes into play a lot with this. I don't believe in any blanket statements, except that maybe things are always changing. Right. Other than that, I don't, I have learned, you know, another controversial thing, but I don't believe in blanket statement affirmations. I don't think they're helpful for everybody. In fact, I will go so far as to say research shows us a lot of times they're detrimental to the people that need them the most. You know, I believe that you should use an affirmation if you believe it seven out of 10. If you don't actually believe it, I don't think you should be using it. Your brain is too powerful, too smart to trick it like that. And oftentimes it can bite us in the the backside if we are sort of feeling one way so strongly and we've had years and decades to hold this belief and then just look in the mirror and say the opposite thing. That's not how change works. What would someone do then? What would you do in your toolkit if you are someone who doesn't believe, but you want to be a believer or you want to have this affirmation in your life, but you're like, I just don't feel it at all. Right. What would you tell that person to do? That's a great question. So, you know, I was sitting across from a client a few years back and he had a very, very strong belief that he was not lovable, not desirable. And all he wanted in this life was a relationship. He wanted a partner. He wanted love because at the core, that's what we all want. And honestly, it's what we need. We all need to feel loved. But his actual core belief for multiple generations that he has collected evidence over time was that he is not lovable. He is not desirable. So he had gone through, you know, many different types of treatments, traditional therapy, medication, healers, the whole thing. But, you know, he was saying, you know, one thing that he was prescribed was to stand in front of the mirror the first thing when he woke up and right before he went to bed, because those are, you know, very powerful times. And to just say in front of the mirror, I love myself 10 times. He has spent 45 years of his life not feeling that he is lovable. Just saying in front of the mirror, I love myself is not going to work. In fact, it made him feel more shitty. You're driving down the road, you know, 100 miles per hour on the highway, and then you just turn, you're going to crash and burn. You have to go small and you have to do it in an intentional way. So my question for him, I said, erase the, I don't want you using the affirmation of I love myself 10 times in the mirror. I'd rather you use something that's true for you. And then we build on that. So what's one thing you really like about yourself? Anything. Everyone can name one thing they appreciate or like about themselves. And, you know, some people take a little longer to to come up with that than others. But very quickly, he said, I'm a loyal friend. Or I think I tell a great story. I make people laugh. So we said, okay, let's start with I'm a loyal friend. I want you saying that in a mirror. How much do you believe that one to 10? He's like, I believe that nine. Okay, I'd rather you look in the mirror and say, I am a loyal friend. And I like that about myself 10 times. So he uses that as his affirmation. And what that does is your brain wants to be right. It creates all different forms of efficiency shortcuts. 
And that's a good thing. It can be against us too. It's kind of like when you drive to work every day and sometimes you get there and you're like, how did I get here? I don't even remember driving because we've created these shortcuts so that your brain can then focus on other things. And so if we're not intentional about what we're thinking about, sometimes those patterns can be bad things that we've been thinking and programming and creating the shortcut, but also we can use it to our benefit. So he now believes that he's a good friend, a loyal friend, and he's saying it out loud. He's making it more true. His brain's like, yeah, that is true. Here's all the evidence of the last 45 years to make that true. Your brain is like a detective. It collects evidence. So then he collects that evidence. It's more and more true. And when you hold on to that thought and you intentionally make yourself hold on to that feeling and thought longer, your brain will collect other evidence to continuously surround that and make it more true. So we come up with these sort of beliefs that are believable and true, and we keep saying them and we repeat them and we make our brain, you know, focus on them. But after, you know, a few weeks of this, a couple months of this, we've collected enough evidence that maybe he can't say he's not lovable anymore. Maybe he can't say I love myself yet. But he certainly will be able to say, I like myself because maybe he has 15, 20 different affirmations that he believed or truths, I would say, that he does like about himself. And so we've just made him collect evidence. We're just detectives. And then after that, you know, you challenge the reality. You challenge your thought and you say, huh, can you really say you don't like yourself? You don't love yourself? Well... I don't like this, this, and this about myself, but I really do love this, this, and this about myself. And so you're dismantling the belief that no longer serves you. It really feels like almost like a necklace that you're untangling. Yes, 100%. Instead of just like pulling it. You can't do that. Yeah, you have to kind of go slow and and unravel one piece by one piece. Because basically what your brain does when you do the thing we talked about before, which is someone that holds that belief of, I do not love myself. I am not lovable. And then they just look in a mirror and they say, I love myself. Your brain starts to circulate all the evidence to show you that that's not true. And not only is that not true, how absolutely stupid of you to think that and say that. And then what? Then we're in shame. We're in guilt. We're in fear. We are in, you know, more of an insecure position than we were. And we've done nothing but sort of do ourselves more harm. So affirmations, I don't believe in blanket statement ones, but I do believe that if you believe whatever you're telling yourself, seven out of 10 to be true, then use it if you don't find a new one. That's really powerful. That's really, really powerful. (laughs) So good. Well, okay. So for someone, so that's probably what you would say. So if someone was using affirmations and they were like, I didn't really believe it, but Mm -hmm. then over time, because this is kind of me, like over Mm -hmm. time, it's almost like my body just started responding and then finding evidence to believe it. Mm-hmm. But would you probably say I was probably on a scale of more five or six than a one yeah. or a two? Well, I think that these affirmations help. It's it's interesting and ironic. You can use them and they help when you're generally in a good place. So where it doesn't help is for the people that really, truly need them. And that's where all of this stuff can kind of be dangerous. Like a lot of the stuff we talk about is true for people that are already starting at a six or a seven or an eight. But what about the people that are reading about all this or seeing them on Instagram as the tools to life and they're at a one and a two and a three? Like that's not helpful. Mm, That's really, really powerful. That's really cool. What other things can people do to, because I think unworthiness and feeling the feelings of unlovable are probably like, in my mind, one of the root things that keeps people from feeling Mm -hmm. joy or even moving forward. 
how else would you advise someone who's just in that? I don't feel worthy. I don't feel lovable. What else would you encourage them to step into? What other tools? Well, I am partial to visualization. I have been studying the science behind sensory-based visual imagery for I don't know, 12, 13 years. It's what I did my dissertation project on many years ago before I feel like it was kind of widely more acceptable, which is really nice that it is because I feel like when I was studying visual imagery and optimism, I was a little too woo-woo for my science community and I was way too sciencey for the self-help community (laughs) at that time. But now I feel like we've kind of bridged a nice happy medium and I feel like the work now makes sense to people more and it's more relevant and it's why I get to talk on stages like this, I think, about the very thing that I was passionate about 15 years ago. And so I am a big believer in using visual imagery. Your brain does not actually know the difference between when you're visualizing or imagining something and when it's actually happening. And that is because of something called mirror neurons. And it's kind of like where this was researched a lot was in sports psychology. So if you've heard of the idea of mental rehearsing, your body can only do so much. It has limitations. It's physical. So all the top athletes in the world, not only do they physically practice, but they mentally rehearse as well. And the same is true for all of us. And so this visualization and sensory-based visual imagery can be used for a number of things I do sessions with people and have for over a decade now on very specific things. So we're in LA, of course, how I started all this, you know, after going from psycho-oncology, it very, I don't know, turned into helping people in the industry with auditions. (laughs) Obviously, we're in LA. And before that, when I was at the hospital, I would do a visual imagery for everyone going through breast cancer surgery. So it just happened to be where I was placed. And so it was like a new a new thing we were doing. And I said, hey, can I just have 15 minutes with every single patient right before surgery and just like do a visual imagery with them? And then it started to be when they were, you know, getting infusions in the lab. And so it can be used for anything, something very specific, but it also can be used to change self-limiting beliefs. And the reason that I say that is our brain does not put forth energy to create any solutions to any problems unless it believes that the outcome is something that's possible. So the key to that really is you don't always get what you want, but you most always get what you expect. So we focus so much on the want, but we're missing out on this huge piece, which is what are you actually expecting to happen? If you want something 10 out of 10, but you don't really believe it can happen. You believe it two out of 10. Your brain is not your friend. It is not helping you put forth the energy to come up with solutions. You know, I ask a large room of people who wants to win the lottery and everyone's like, of course I want to win the lottery. Why wouldn't I want to win the lottery? But all those people that raise their hands and say, I would love to win the lottery, I ask them, did you buy a lotto ticket this morning? No, nobody bought a lotto ticket this morning, maybe one person. Why? Because you don't actually believe you could win. So why would you put the effort you know, and the energy to drive yourself to, you know, I don't even know where you get a lotto ticket anymore because I don't believe in it. Because I, yeah, gas station, (laughs) you drive there, you get out of your car, you pay money, you get the lotto ticket, you wait and you look like very few people do that because they don't actually believe that they can win. And so the same goes for the energy that we spend. Our brains have limited capacity for attention. We think that we can think about everything under the sun, but we actually can't. And so your brain is constantly coming up with 
these shortcuts so that it can actually deal with the stuff that it needs to deal with and the stimulation it needs to deal with. And so it's not going to spend energy on things that it doesn't think or you don't think are going to actually happen. So if you want, you know, that relationship, but you don't actually think it's going to happen, then you're probably, your brain's not telling you to put, you know, the energy into going out on a specific night into... Ooh, I think a lot of people can relate to that. Yeah. Are you putting yourself out there? No, because exactly. you don't actually think it's possible. You don't believe it. Even if you want it, you made the vision board, it's on there. You know what this man or woman looks like. You can even get into the space of, for a second, like what it might feel like. Oh, totally. But if you don't actually believe that it can happen or that it will happen, then it's very unlikely that your brain is helping you with its executive functioning to start coming up with solutions and taking action. So the real change is in your expectation and visualization can help with that because your brain, if you are able to go through a visualization with someone and you visualized it or you've imagined it with all of your senses in that frame of mind, you're much more likely to believe that it's true and that it can happen, even if it's a shred. We start with a shred. You got to start, start with, with a shred. shred. <laughs> yeah. You start with a okay, shred. Well, all right. We have to ask this question. Okay. So someone who is visualizing, let's, let's do the partner thing. You're saying just spending time in visualization every day, feeling it, seeing it. What if someone comes to you and says, I have a hard time seeing things or visualizing. I don't know how to be imaginative. What would you tell them? This is why it's really good to work with a skilled person. So this reminds me of another client I had or a patient at the time because I was at the hospital. And this is, again, why things like you can't just do everything off of like an Instagram feed. It does serve you well to go somewhere when you need help to someone that's an expert in that. And I was sitting across from him. And for some people, I could say, give me some details so we can create a custom visualization. It's a science and an art form. People don't know there's a science behind it. There are certain times where it's better for me to put someone through a visualization where they're imagining from the third person versus the first person. There are certain times where I use color and very specific color. This is all science-based. And so you wouldn't get all that by just sort of saying to someone, like, just think about, you know, someone you really want to be with. That's not what I mean when I say visualization particularly. I mean, like doing it for real. And I was sitting across from him and I realized I could suggest that to maybe someone like you. We could talk and I could say, imagine whatever this is or this situation is, give me some details so we can write it all out. With him, the same person that was really stuck, especially with feeling not lovable, I couldn't ask him, you know, I asked him, imagine who's this person like? what is this feeling? Can you imagine like, what's this feeling of being with this future person? And he laughed at me. He scoffed at me and went, what do you mean? Like, I can't even get there. How could I, no one would ever want to be with me. So then I like put the brakes on and I sort of tricked him for the best intentions, but it is kind of trickery. I just asked him, you know, I let a couple sessions go by and I looked at him and I asked him and I said, who is the first person that you're going to tell when you meet the partner of your dreams. And he just looked at me very, you know, quickly and said, my mom. And I said, wow, your mom. Okay, cool. Where would you be when you told her? And he was like, you know, I would be in this room. And I was like, what would you be wearing? What would she be wearing? What would it smell like? She'd be cooking this meal. And all of a sudden I have all these details and we're starting to imagine it. And he's imagining it in his brain, but he had to be tricked. Yeah. 
So he had to <laughs> so now he's like, I'm there telling her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then we had a whole imagery to work with. I got all the details I needed to create this custom visualization for him. And I just needed to pull it out from him in a sort of more intentional way in which you only sort of learn things like that from. Wow, that's really cool. Okay. Does anybody have a question you guys want to ask Tafika? Hi. Hi. I'm Holly. By the way, you're brilliant. And I love a a lot of the things that you're saying. It really is about repurposing your narrative Mm -hmm. as opposed to the actual story. With your belief system that you have and evidence-based, what do you feel as far as forms of modalities of practice like Reiki, Mm. which is actually acknowledged as a health modality Mm -hmm. and, you know, bringing in the energy? What is your take on that as far as creating and sending out energy out into the world and to heal others through the simple use of these symbols and, and, you know, heart from it really heart Reiki is love. So what is your take on that? So again, not my expertise, but I love Reiki. I have had Reiki done to me, which reminds me right now with you saying that, like I would do for a session. <laughs> I haven't like tapped into that in a while. And I do remember the few times that I have, and I'm thinking back to like 12 years ago when I first sort of, one of my girlfriends was studying Reiki and she was like, you know, she sent a message around and was like, they had to collect hours. And she's like, does anyone want to have, you know, any free Reiki sessions? And I was like, yes, please. I truly do believe in energy. And that's my personal belief. And I like that you said that, you know, the core of it is love. I think we can change, I know not to sound cliche, but I really do think we can change so much about our own lives and about the lives around us with giving off authentic love. Like when you feel that, and you receive it, you are able to give it. And when you give it, you're able to receive it. And there is this like symbiotic relationship with that, that I think is just on a human level, very necessary that I think we sort of forget these. And I like that you said it was simple. We forget that these like very simple truths of what it is to be a human is at our disposal and these tools that we have. And I think kids should be learning not only about, you know, perception as a tool, they should be learning Reiki in school too. You know, how to move energy, how to give off energy, how to match people's energy, how to embody more of that love and connection. You know, they did a really large study on happiness at Harvard. It's the longest run study ever done on happiness. And I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's a big deal in my world. But at the end of the day, they said the one thing that was really the big factor on, are you happy? And how can we tell if you're happy? And are you going to be happy? The one thing, anyone guess what it is? Content. So it was your social connections and relationships in the end of the day. And I think we focus a lot of times on... Wait, so Harvard discovered the number one key to happiness was due to our social connection? Our quality relationships and our connections to other people. Quality relationships and connections to other people. And I think we focus a lot on romantic relationships, but really what we are like missing out on is we're humans and we need to connect. And bottom line is... We're social creatures. We need connection. We need that sort of symbiotic transfer of love back and forth. We need support. 
we need emotional connection. And so that was the finding. That was the number one finding. You can kind of define whether someone is happy or not by the quality of their relationships. And I thought that was so powerful. And then from that, what are some things we could be doing or what are the tools to really ensure that we have quality relationships and how far lost have we kind of gotten in that idea of really one-to-one connecting with another human. And they don't have to be many, but they have to be quality. That's good. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we have one more question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Joanna. Welcome. It's so great to be here with you. Hi. Powerful women. I appreciate it. I'm a victim of domestic violence since I was a baby. What Mm -hmm. kind of therapy would you suggest for me to overcome my PTSD and Mm -hmm. the central nervous system to heal from that? Because I'd like to kind of delve into that. It's keeping me from being able to progress emotionally through my life. So thank you. I'm so sorry that you have had to endure that and how amazing and powerful you are to be here right now and stand up and say that and to not only share that, but to ask for help. I think that is, I have the chills. That is so powerful. That's resiliency and that's optimism. That tells me you have the hope that something can change and will change. And that's the first step. That's not particularly also my exact expertise, but I will say I'm a big fan of cognitive behavioral techniques. And I'm also, I think things like tapping and many different sort of physical modalities that have evidence based to them are really big and key for me. It's what I always go to. I don't know if you've done any work. Have you done any work before? There's a lot of CBT, cognitive behavioral techniques or offshoots of them that are really geared to PTSD. And I would look into very specific PTSD treatment. There's so much out there right now. And a lot of PTSD is very interrelated to anxiety. And so for me, I I specialize in anxiety, but I would start there. And I also think trauma work is very key. And just being able to have someone, you know, I think a big thing to say about therapy in general or pseudotherapy or healers and all the things that we have at our disposal right now at our fingertips because of things like social media, Instagram, technology, there's a real benefit with it where you can connect with people that maybe you couldn't have before and you can sort of the, you know, ideas spread so quickly, but there's also like a danger in it where I think we have so many choices. And we don't really know what to decipher of between like what is real, what is not, what works for us, what doesn't. Once we start working on something, we see something else flash in our mind of like, no, this is the real way to heal. No, here's the promise. Here's that. And I just think that a lot of times there's never time wasted in getting to know yourself and what works and quieting the noise. We all have to get back to our intuition and our gut. You know, our brains were formulated, actually the majority of it, to process sort of this idea, the gray matter, that really deals with intuition. Yet all of us, including myself, just the type of world we live in, I think it's really hard for us to get back in touch with like what our intuition really says, what our gut says, what feels right and what doesn't. And I think the only way we really, the only thing that works for getting back to that is actually spending time within, which can be scary. 
And also not only scary, I think whenever we have a a moment, and I'm guilty of this 100%, when you have a moment to spare, we don't think about going within, we like pick up our phone. And even at a, you know, I'm guilty of it. I'm something I'm working on. I was finding myself picking up my phone at red lights because I had a moment. There was a moment where I was doing nothing. There was a red light. I just pick up my phone and, you know, start looking like who's texting, what's the emails, what's on like the stories. And, you know, you catch yourself doing that and it's that unintentional. It's already been created as a shortcut in our brain. And we're not used to sort of sitting in the space, in that liminal space of like, there's nothing there. And that's the only space we can be in to really learn what our true selves and our intuition and our gut is telling us. And so it's kind of kind of counterintuitive to the world we live in today, which is productivity. Go, go, go. Any moment you have, make it count. I think that there is a lot of interventions and treatments like that we have today that we are so lucky to have that work really well with PTSD. And I think that just talk therapy is really amazing to process. And the whole point of it is to find a a space that you feel safe. And that's the biggest key. I just think that within that checking in with yourself on, you know, if you're trying anything at the three month mark, at the six month mark, what am I gaining? I think a lot of us can get stuck in going years to someone that is maybe a therapist or some type of healer and you look at it and you're like, I don't really know if I've gained anything. I'm sort of just talking. So that's always for me. I'm sort of more action-based and I like to see, I work with small goals, but it sounds like you're going to have a lot of interesting, inspiring, hard work to sort of let go of some beliefs that unfortunately were created because of consequences and things that happened that were not your fault. You did not create them. And even if you are not fully healed from it, that's not your fault and you didn't do that. So that's the whole piece with all of this that I think is just so tough. You know, we might tell someone from that sort of space that we were talking about before, like just, you know, think a different thought and it'll go away. But unfortunately, it's not as simple as that. Our thoughts are much more complex and our thoughts have roots. And our thoughts can even be ancestral and can, you know, come from deeper than even childhood. But having said that, your brain is malleable. And the good news is, even though, you know, things like manifestation, by the way, work on a scientific level from neuroplasticity and the fact that our brains are malleable and that we can grow. And we do know that, yes, way more malleable as children and a lot less malleable as adults, but we still do have neuroplasticity as adults. We just have to do the work. It does take work. (laughs) work. Okay, well, what's your work in the morning? How do you start your day? How does Dr. Topeka start her day? So interesting question. I was actually just talking about this this morning. I speak a lot about the science behind routines and rituals. Our brain and our bodies love rituals. We all work on rhythms, even like our sleep. We work on circadian rhythms and there's so many different ways that you can sort of hack and science-base your day based on rituals. People say eating the same thing at the same time every day, like that's the healthiest thing to do, sleep at the same time, all of that. But um, we live in the real world. We can't necessarily all do that with you boys. (laughs) I used to be a lot better at ritualizing and routine until I became a mom. I have a six-year-old now and a almost three-year-old, two boys. 
And I remember that when I first had my first baby and he was really small, I think I realized in a flash sort of, you know, I was having a really tough time. I was struggling. I think eight months went by and I was like, wow, if I like took a sweep at my life right now and compared it to what I was doing, you know, every day before, I don't think I've done one thing that would sort of be, I don't love this word, but be in the bucket of self-care in eight months. And I realized that it wasn't just because I was like, oh, I'm a mom. Nobody does self-care as a mom. It was because I was kind of looking at it the wrong way and I was doing myself a disservice. I am a person that sort of errs on the side of perfectionism, which is not great. And it's something I work on. It causes a lot of anxiety. And I was realizing that like, if I didn't have the 10 minutes in the morning exactly for the type of visual imagery I always did for myself, then I didn't do it. I'm the kind of person where if I couldn't, you know, read one whole chapter or more, I would not read a book because what's the point? If I didn't have the full hour for like body work, then I wasn't going to do it. And I'm someone that stores a lot of my stress, like in I'm somatic, like I store all my stress in my body. Things come up for me physically much more. And the thing that helped me even in my practice over time dealing with so much energy was having a massage weekly. That was my thing. I don't really drink. I'm not a drinker. I I was never a person that's like, I need a glass of wine. That's fine. I was like, I need a massage. I need to be touched. (laughs) I need this worked out. And I was realizing I hadn't had even like, no one had touched my like neck in eight months. And I was just so tight. And I was strolling my son down the street on the sidewalk. And I looked at one of, I just looked up and I looked at one of those places that was like a nail salon that said like a dollar for a minute massage. (laughs) I would have never, like I was getting weekly one hour massage, you know? And I was like, you know what? Why not? I have four minutes before I have to get home and take this call. I was really close to home. So that means I had three minutes to maybe do this. They had a five minute minimum, but I said, that's okay. You can I'll just, pay the five. I'll pay the five. <laughs> so I gave them my $5. They did the three minute massage while my son was in his stroller. I strolled him back. I got there for my call and I was like, I don't know, it was a light bulb moment. It sounds really silly, but I was like, there is no time that is too small to do an act of joy or self-care that makes me feel better. And I started realizing that I had to steal moments. I call them micro moments. And I always tell all my clients, if I read another person's morning ritual on a magazine, like when I am asked that for an interview, like for anything, I'm like, I'm not, that's, you're not going to get that from me because I don't have a 15 step process in the morning. I cannot do it. I'm not great at doing things over and over. I try to, but I've realized that I make my moments, micro moments count. I steal about five or six times a day, whether I get 90 seconds here three minutes here, one minute here. One thing that I do every morning is I call it wake up and dance. I found it in COVID. I I love music and I love, I want to say not, I do love moving to music, but I almost feel like called. If music comes on, like I can't sit still. I think it's like a gene for my dad. Like he just gets up and he's like, he'll start dancing. I have that in me. And I'm not like saying I'm a good dancer. I shouldn't, I should backtrack that. I try to help people be more empowered. (laughs) I'm not like a dancer. Like I don't know the like moves, you know, but like I moved to music and it makes me feel really good. And so during COVID, during lockdown, I was like, the first thing I did when I woke up in the morning is I would just, before I talked to my husband, before I brushed my teeth, before I changed, before I got the kids, 
And this is coming from someone that every morning when my baby, my first baby was small, I would go in his room immediately before I peed and I got, gave myself a bladder infection. Just saying. You got to take care of yourself. (laughs) I know that sounds like, but I'm giving it in that example. Like my husband would brush his teeth, wash his face, go to the bathroom and then go into my son's room when it was his day. And I would like run in and be like, he slept for 12 hours all by himself. He's so great. Like I have to be there right when he says hello and like holding my pee. (laughs) So I have learned that I wake up in the morning, I put any song I feel called on And I just move it out and I dance. And sometimes I get a full song in. Sometimes I get two. Sometimes I don't even get a full song in. That is my non-negotiable. Every day, wake up and dance. You got to have your one non-negotiable. And then if you can get more, that's amazing. But pick something that is easy to do. You could do it from anywhere if you're traveling. It doesn't require too many resources because then you won't do it. And it makes you feel good. And do it until it doesn't make you feel good anymore. It's still making me feel good. So I'm still doing it. Wow, that's cool. I'm going to try this whole dance thing. And the first thing in the morning, that's... Yeah, wake up and dance. I mean, that's my thing. That's in my toolbox. I'm going to try it. You might have, you know, some people it's making their cup of coffee or, you know, whatever it is. Whatever it is. That's cool. I love that. Okay, in closing, we have a beautiful amount of women out here, but let's imagine there's a million people right in front of you right now and you have one sentence or one word you choose that you're going to say to them I mean things are looking up (laughs) that's my brand name and it's kind of why I created it this by the way is a deck of 52 cards and they are not affirmation cards if you can guess (laughs) they are cards that have an actual prompt or suggestion they tell you what to do and they are all science or holistic based and you can do them in less than most of them less than a minute and so it kind of goes with that idea I pick a card out I try to pick a card out every afternoon I like to do it sort of towards the end of my day and answer the prompt and the exciting thing is the things are looking up kids deck is about to launch in a couple weeks that's cool. Yeah. And it's something that we've been working on for a while. And my kids illustrated it. Nice. How cool is that? Your six-year-old. My six-year-old and my almost three-year-old a little bit, but mainly my six-year-old. That is awesome. That's so cool. Things are looking up. How incredible. Thank you so much for being here (laughs) on the show. It's been great to have you. It's so great to meet all of you. (laughs) 